You're listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For other resources, more information about this sermon series, or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. All right, let's pray. Excited to get into this with you. Heavenly Father, we come before you. Um, reading these words that Jesus has spoken and kind of wishing that they were for someone else. (laughs) And yet, God, we know that in your great love for us, you've given us these words. Jesus, you've loved us, and you've given us these words that you've taught. And, And so we pray that we would not only be willing to accept them, but Jesus, we pray that you would transform us by your words. Holy Spirit, would you come now to every person who's with us here, whether they're watching this online or they're here in the room with us, Holy Spirit, would you, would you just come, reveal to us our own hearts that we might become more like you. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So Jesus told a story of two men who went up to the Temple Mount to pray. It was a Pharisee and a tax collector. Some of you guys might be familiar with this story. And you can kind of picture them walking up those giant steps up to the Temple Mount to the place that was called the place of prayer. And then when they get there, standing really far apart from each other. Because it's a Pharisee and a tax collector, and these guys did not like each other. You see, tax collectors, they weren't like IRS auditors. They were really treasonous people. They, they were Jews, but they collected taxes on behalf of the oppressive Roman government. And what's worse, they were notorious for greedily forcing people to pay them more than what they were required to. And so they were essentially stealing from their own people on behalf of their enemies and getting rich from it. So these guys are horrible people. But there's also this Pharisee who's there, right? And the Pharisees would have considered themselves to be the best Jew that a Jew could possibly be. They were religious nationalists. They saw themselves as morally superior to everyone else, and they especially hated tax collectors. And so these two guys are at the temple praying, and the Pharisee goes first. And here's what he says. God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector over here. I fast twice a week and I give tithes of all that I get. Can you believe this guy? Can you believe him? There's actually a a footnote in our Bible here that says that he was essentially praying to himself. That's how full of himself he was. But then the tax collector prays, and Jesus says the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven. So he's looking down, and he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now this man, he's not full of himself. He's actually emptying himself. He's he's honest. He sees his absolute need For God, he recognizes he's a sinner in need of God's mercy. 
And so he's coming to God. He's humbly repenting, turning away from a life of sin, and he's turning back to God. And you know what Jesus' commentary on this story was. Here's what he says. This man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Okay, why am I telling you this story? Well, because Jesus used it to illustrate what we're going to be talking about today, judging others. And what I hope to prove to you is that Jesus is actually saying that we should judge people. I know that sounds weird at first, and you might not believe me, but I think you'll see as we, as we go through this passage that Jesus is saying we actually should judge people, but because of our sinfulness, we must always judge people by God's standards. We must hold ourselves to the same standards that we impose on others, and we must judge our own hearts before judging others. Ultimately, this comes down to being either hypocritical like that Pharisee or whole like the tax collector. Seeing ourselves as superior or humbly seeing ourselves through God's eyes. So the big idea is when we can see rightly, we can judge rightly. When we can see rightly, we can judge rightly. So let's go back now to the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 7. We're going to look beginning at verse one, Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So when we can see rightly, we can judge rightly. The problem is we can't often see rightly. <laughs> that's the problem. And when that's the case, we are quick to judge others and slow to judge ourselves. What is this judgment that Jesus is, is talking about here? We tend to think of the word judge as kind of equal to condemn. Like, like we would translate this as, you know, condemn not that you be not condemned. But as one commentator has said, a better translation is do not judge unfairly. In other words, we shouldn't judge others more harshly or by a different standard than we judge ourselves. That's the point. And we could easily assume that Jesus would, would be saying, don't worry about other people's lives, focus on your own. That's how we can kind of interpret this. But as we'll see in the next few verses, this is about having a right heart, not about altogether avoiding making judgments. And we might say, well, geez, that judgments, that, that just doesn't sound very loving. That doesn't sound very nice. Shouldn't Jesus just condemn all judgment? No. Let me explain why with a, a kind of a made-up scenario, okay? So imagine this. Imagine that your grandma got scammed by some financial predator online, okay? And, and let's just say that this man stole tens of thousands of dollars from your vulnerable grandma. Now, usually when someone scams someone online, they do it anonymously, and you have absolutely no way of tracking them down, right? But here's the twist. In this case, this scammer shows up here at Trinity on Sunday, and he actually identifies himself. He actually says, yep, that was me. 
you're in absolute shock. What do you do? What do, what do you say? Well, you decide to confront them and tell them that what they did was wrong and that they need to repent. That's turn away from that sin, stop doing it, and they need to make restitution. That means they need to pay back the people who they have stolen from. And what does this scammer say to you when you tell them that? They say, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. And then they proceed to give you a Bible lesson. They go, haven't you read what Jesus said? Jesus said, judge not that you be not judged. And you go, you know, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said anything, right? (laughs) Now, what's wrong with this picture? Can we all agree that this scammer needs to change, right? Can we all agree that this scammer's actions need to be called out? You see, our our culture, we just don't look at it that way. We tend to think that all judgment is wrong judgment. You see, we live in such an individualistic culture that someone saying, don't judge me, comes off as righteous. We're like, who are you to tell someone else what to do? And we live in such a relativistic culture that someone saying, don't judge me, comes off as righteous. Like, who are you to tell me what's right and what's wrong? And this, of course, has infiltrated and infected Christian culture to the point where people always just go back to these verses and they take them out of context and they just say, judge not that you be not judged. You can't judge me. But is what we mean when we say don't judge the same thing that Jesus means when he says don't judge? Is he actually telling us not to judge people? No. And I'd like to kind of prove that to you by saying that I I think it's important to point out that a primary tenet of the Christian faith is that this world is tainted by the brokenness of human sin. Right? And, and because we live in a world where humans do wrong, that wrong needs to be pointed out and corrected. Making moral judgments is both good and necessary. And so God, in His grace, He's given us the standard for judging human sin. And that standard is His perfect, objective, authoritative word. He's so good to us. But to bring it back to what Jesus is exposing here, let's now look at a slightly different scenario, okay? Remember the one that I talked to you about earlier, about the grandmas getting scammed, right? Now, let's say you're the scammer. What? Okay, just just think about that for a second. Now you're the scammer. You're the one scamming old ladies online. And let's just say that you come to church on Sunday, And as you're walking in, you notice that one of the grandmas, as she's walking in, her gold earring falls out in the foyer, falls on the ground. And before anyone can get her attention, you see someone else run up, grab that gold earring, put it in their pocket, and you chase after them. You're indignant. You're mad at that person. And you you approach them. You go over to that thief, and you tell them what they did was evil. (laughs) They need to repent. They need to give that earring back. Now, what's wrong with this picture? 
We said that making moral judgments is both good and necessary, right? But making moral judgments without starting with ourselves is both bad and harmful. Everything is so tainted by sin that we can even be wrong when we point out wrong. That's what Jesus is telling us. So what do we do? What do we do? Jesus is going to help us with five steps for how to judge people. That's actually the title of the sermon, by the way, How to Judge People. I kind of like that because uh, nobody wants to watch that sermon. So how to judge people. Five steps. You ready? Let's do it. Step one, see the log. This is verses three and four. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? How can you attack that guy who stole the earring from the grandma in the foyer without addressing the fact that you have been scamming old ladies? That's the point. Do you even know your own heart? Do you even recognize your own sinfulness? If you see it as your job to police everyone else, if you live your life in a critical spirit, always picking on and criticizing other people, if you judge everyone by standards that you haven't taken the time to evaluate in your own heart, if you count yourself as morally superior to other people, then you have a log in your eye. You've got a log in your eye. You have a, a, a giant beam or, or rafter hanging off the edge of your face. That's what Jesus is saying. You can't see a thing. Judgmental self-righteousness blinds you. You cannot see clearly. Your point of view is so distorted that you actually begin to think that the log is sticking out of other people's eyes. <laughs> you get what I'm saying? You actually look at what other people have done and, and it gets inflated and, and blown up. And so Jesus teaches us what to do when we're stuck in that log and speck scenario. He says, you got to see that log. But step two you got to see past that log and see to the person. you got to see to the person that you are judging. Did you notice that the term that Jesus uses for the other person in this scenario is brother? Now, he's not talking about a biological brother. And he's also not necessarily talking about a male person. He's talking about your fellow human being. Your fellow human being. See, when you're judging other people with a big log sticking out of your eye, people don't look like people. People just look like their sin. That's what we all see. And more than that, this, this word brother, the reason why Jesus uses this word brother isn't just to see others as your fellow human being, fellow image bearer of God, worthy of being treated with dignity, but he's also saying this person is your peer. You're not above them. You're not better than them. You're actually equal. And think about this. A brother is also a deeply loved one. Brotherhood is a relationship here that symbolizes being, this person is, is being your own flesh and blood. And this is key to relating 
without judgmental self-righteousness. Seeing people more than the problem, seeing people as human beings, as your peers, as your brothers. And then Jesus gives us more instruction for how to judge people, okay? Step three, remove the log. This was the beginning of verse five where he said, you hypocrite, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye. You can't just see the log. You can't just see past the log to the person. You actually have to do the hard work of taking that thing out. Have you ever uh, seen a forced perspective demonstration? For you guys who are nerds like uh, enjoyed the Lord of the Rings, they, they have a lot of the special features talking about how they did all this forced perspective things to make Gandalf look bigger than, you know, the hobbits and stuff like that. Here's, a, here's actually a gif, or sorry, for you young people, is this a gif? I don't know. Um, this is a gif. Okay, J- Jason, thanks. But you can kind of see here, check this out. This guy looks really big to the other guy until all of a sudden he passes through. So you get the point. Sometimes it's all a matter of perspective. The same distorted point of view is at play here in Jesus' analogy. You look over, and it appears that someone else's wrongdoing is monumental. Like, it's just huge. You could see it as clear as day. Their sin is sticking out like a rafter. In fact, you kind of duck when you pass them. You're afraid they're going to hit you. But in reality, that beam is sticking out of your eye. In reality, you are the one with the greater sin. And your distorted point of view is just making it look like it's theirs. But all they've got is just this little teeny tiny splinter. This is how much hypocrisy skews our view. We need someone to remove the log if we are going to see. We need help. We need to examine ourselves. That's what Jesus is talking about. We need to invite God's Spirit to come and to reveal where we are blinded from our own wrong, where, where are we fixed on other people's flaws while neglecting our own. Have you ever had to do this? A friend of mine had someone in their small church, or small group, sorry, in their small group at church that drove him absolutely nuts. This is just a hypothetical scenario, by the way, so... Just playing. <laughs> he had someone in, in his small group who just drove him absolutely nuts. This person was self-centered. They were always turning the conversation in on themselves. They were out of touch with everyone else around them. They wouldn't listen. And my friend had to interact with this person on at least a weekly basis, right? And any time that he was going to see them, he, he just dreaded it. And then when he was with them... He was completely irritated by them. Sorry. <laughs> Is that you? Was it you? Okay. <laughs> but you know, 1 Corinthians 13 says, love is not irritable. Love is not irritable. And so, of course, the Holy Spirit, with the help of my friend's wife, right, <laughs> exposed this wrongness in his heart, and he, be, he began to, 
to look more closely. And he began to just lift this up to God, going, this is not right. God, what is, what is going on here? Why do you want me to love this person? That's kind of where it began. But then it kind of moved to, how do you want me to love this person? I, I want to do that. And then, what does my irritation with this person reveal about me? He recognized this log, and he, by the power of the Spirit, he began to remove it. And he began, over time, to see this difficulty with this person in his group, not as an inconvenience, but as an opportunity to love. He recognized his log, and he removed it. And I think that one of the hardest places for us to do this is in a marriage relationship. Now, I know not everyone here is married. This does apply to pretty much any close relationship, anywhere where you are super uh, close to someone else, but I think marriage is the best illustration of it. You're, You're standing so close that you begin to think that the only thing that's there is the other person's flaws, right? You pick on everything that your spouse does without recognizing you do the very same things. Or what's worse, you, 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 the Holy Spirit reveals to you the things that you do wrong, but you just self-justify. You're like, well, I'm still better than them. You know, sure, I'm lazy and I don't clean up, but they're worse. Sure, I have a bad attitude, but they're worse. Sure, I'm critical, but they're worse. Really? And some of this actually stems from a wrong view of marriage in general. You can approach marriage from the perspective of, my job is to fix my spouse, which of course assumes that you're the one who sees things rightly, right? Or you can approach marriage from the perspective of, my spouse is God's gift to me to help me to grow, to help me to see the logs in my eyes so I can remove them. So whether you're married or not, consider the closest relationships that you have. Is this how you relate? Do you invite others to actually help you to see? Do you want them to help you see? Do you seek them out, your friends, your your kids, your parents, your roommates, your classmates, your teammates at work? So we got to remove that log, not just see it, not just see past it but in God's strength, remove it. Step number four, remove the speck. This is the second half of verse five where Jesus said, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. When we keep logs in our eyes, our goal is to actually see wrongly so that we can maintain a sense of superiority over other people. But when we remove logs from our eyes, our goal is to see clearly not only to benefit ourselves, but also for the good of others. Do you get that? That we fail to help our brother when we fail to help ourselves, when we fail to judge ourselves. See, Jesus says that there's actually something that the brother has done wrong. It's not that the brother hadn't done anything wrong, but your brother needs your help. 
Do you know that? Do you know that, church? Your brother needs your help. Your brother needs your judgment. He also needs you not to be a hypocrite, okay? But he needs your judgment. Of course, I don't just mean biological brother. I don't just mean male person. I mean your fellow human and especially your fellow brother or sister in Christ. But think about this. You are the one who's removing the speck. You will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, judging rightly is helpful. It's helpful. If you don't believe me, just think about this. Have you ever had something stuck in your eye? (laughs) Amen? Amen? Isn't that like the worst feeling? It's not even that big of an obstruction, but it causes a huge problem. You've got to get that thing out. You rub it, and you rub it, and you rub it. You might go in the mirror. I don't know if you've ever done this. You kind of stand there, and you're like trying to see if you can see while still picking that thing out, right? You might flush it with water. You ever have those, those things in your eye that never come out, and you're like, what happened to that thing? Did it get lodged behind my eyeball or something? Anyway, sorry, I'll just leave that over there. Anyway, consider how painful and how frustrating it can be to have a speck in your eye and how even such a small obstruction actually prevents you from seeing rightly. And so if that's how awful it is to have something stuck in your eye, consider how great it would be if someone were with you who could easily see it. They don't need to like you know, hold their eye up to the mirror, They're, they could easily see it, and they could just remove it for you. Doesn't that sound great? Wouldn't you love for them to do that? After all, what happens when they do? Not only is your pain relieved, but you actually can see rightly again. Now, I need to nuance this, because here I'm telling you all to judge other people, okay? I've got a nuance. We've got to be very careful here because we are flawed and sinful human beings. Even if we've taken that log out, we're still flawed and sinful human beings. We are not God. How does our judgment differ from God's judgment? Well, we have this command to make moral judgments, but we don't have a command to condemn people on behalf of God. I can't find a verse anywhere in the scripture that says that. Like, we're not supposed to say, God, curse you, or you will burn in hell, or something awful like that. Now, why shouldn't we judge people in that way? The answer is, it's just not our job. It's not our job. And the whole point is that Jesus is teaching us to aim toward reconciliation, not to damnation. This whole thing is about how to bring people together, not to push people away. And the whole business of ultimate and eternal judgment, that's that's in God's hands. He's the only one who knows the secrets of people's hearts. He's the only one who has the right to truly judge people in that sense. But we don't just need to be careful how we judge. We also need to be careful who we judge. And that's step five. That's the final step that Jesus teaches us. Be careful who you judge. It's verse six where he said, 
Do not give to dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Anybody else going, what in the world is going on here with this verse? (laughs) Isn't that strange? And it seems not only confusing at first, but also just sort of out of left field. Like, what is Jesus talking about? And, And what does this have to do with anything that he's just been talking about? Well, Let's break this down. I had to study this a lot this week. (laughs) This is where I spent a fair amount of time trying to understand. Okay, these pearls, most people think they're Jesus' teaching about his kingdom, that that his kingdom is to be prized, highly valued and esteemed. And Jesus and his audience, they also would have seen the dogs and the pigs in the same category as, as unclean, right? As, as ones to be avoided. And dogs and pigs often symbolized the Gentiles, which were people who didn't know God, and therefore they were unclean. And therefore they were people who you shouldn't associate with, at least in the sense that you do what they do. And so interestingly, Jesus here is actually using the dogs and pigs not to describe the Gentiles, but to describe his fellow Jews who don't believe his teaching. That's what he's doing. That's that's pretty offensive, Jesus. Yes. And so what do pearls and pigs have to do with logs and specks? Well, one probable connection that I read this week is that we must hold grace in tension with wisdom in how we relate to other people. In other words... There's a time and a place to acknowledge that someone else's behavior is wrong, but we also have to be discerning who we do that with. I think that's what Jesus is saying. Don't expend too much energy trying to convince someone who just won't listen. Not everyone is actually going to be willing to receive correction. Proverbs actually says that this is one sign, one way to tell the difference between a wise person and a fool. It says, do not reprove a mocker or he will hate you. Reprove a wise person and he will love you. And so you've got to be discerning enough to know the difference between one who will listen and one who won't. In closing, I want to, I want to share the way that this passage, what Jesus taught here, hit me this week, and I want to share it with you not just to kind of do a public confession, <laughs> but also because I think it might be helpful to you as well what God is teaching me and what I'm learning. How many of you guys are familiar with the Enneagram? Anyone? Okay, most of you. Wow. Man, that thing has spread like wildfire over the last 10 years, hasn't it? That's gotten really popular. Well, how many of you guys just hate personality tests? Any of you? Okay, fair number. Okay. You're with Emily, my wife. She hates personality tests. So just bear with me for a minute here if that's you. We're going to talk about the Enneagram, the personality test. And kind of the way that it works is there are nine different styles is what some uh, people call it. Nine different ways that you identify. uh, and, And kind of people can be more in one camp or the other. It's probably an oversimplification, but I'll leave it at that. And I'm probably strongest as a one. Okay, that's where I get, I get the highest uh, scores is, is in the one category. And I'll just give you a quick description of an Enneagram one. 
Ones are conscientious and ethical with a strong sense of right and wrong. They are teachers, crusaders, advocates for change, always striving to improve things, but afraid of making a mistake. Well-organized, orderly, and fastidious, they try to maintain high standards, but can slip into being critical and perfectionistic. Oof, yuck. At their best, ones are wise, discerning, realistic, and noble. Ooh, I want to be like that. But at their worst, ones want to be right. They want to improve everything and be consistent with their ideals. Why? To justify themselves, yuck, and be beyond criticism, double yuck. It it pains me to say that this can at times describe me. Now, fortunately, God has done a lot of work on me over the years, a lot of work on me, and I don't struggle with all of these things on a regular basis, but I do tend to place extremely high expectations onto myself, and the problem with that is that I also tend to pass on those same expectations onto other people, and so I've had to apologize to Emily and my kids before. Sorry again, guys. For being that way. I mean that and I want to change. I got to apologize to you guys. I don't want to be that kind of a pastor. That's a miserable pastor to be under, to be a person like that. But whether you are in Enneagram 1 or not, you may have that same problem that I just described. You may be someone who is critical or condemning rather than life-giving with your words. And if that's you, we have to remember that it's not just what we judge, but it's the way that we communicate our judgment that matters. You know, we, even if we're judging rightly, we can't throw out all of Jesus' other teaching, including love your neighbor, right? And love is more than simply stating what is right and what is wrong. Meaning it's not just about being right, and that's the end of it. Love, we are told, it it builds up. Love builds up. And, And yes, there is a time and a place for correcting one another, but the primary goal is that our words would be giving grace to those who hear. That's what Ephesians 4 tells us. According to one study, it takes three to five statements of affirmation to overcome the discouragement of one critical statement. So just think about that and consider that. We've always got to keep in balance this emphasis on encouragement over correction. We can't just point out everything that is wrong all the time. It's not our job. That's not our purpose. Think about this, if we were to point out what was wrong in any given situation, it would never end, right? We're living in a broken and fallen world, and just imagine if God related to us that way. Imagine if the moment that you became a Christian, the Holy Spirit pointed out every single thing that was wrong with all of your actions, your thoughts, or your desires right then and there. That would have been crushing, right? You would never be able to handle that. But in His grace, He works on us just 
slowly over time. He exposes things little by little in portions that we can actually handle. That's how much he loves us. Yes, in any given moment, there's probably something that is wrong in us or, or in what we are doing, but in his grace, he perfectly waits till the right moment to correct us because he bears with us. He bears with us. And in the same way, we must bear with one another, not always looking to judge everyone, but by the power of the Holy Spirit focusing on getting those logs out of our own eyes, and when the time is right, helping someone else remove their speck. When we can see rightly, we can judge rightly. And this is the joy of getting to live in the kingdom of heaven, friends. Do you know that, church? This is the joy that we are not just a bunch of autonomous people dealing with our own logs and specks on our own, but rather we get to be a part of this family that God is establishing, this loving family. God is our heavenly Father, and the church are our brothers and sisters. And we get to do this together. And because God is our, our heavenly Father, we have this unshakable, life-giving, loving relationship with the creator of the universe. And as we've already seen in Jesus' sermon, our Father wants us to come to him with all of our faults, with all of our failures, our fears, our sins. He's, he's literally waiting to receive us with open arms forgiving arms. And he'll remove anything that is sticking out of your eye. It doesn't matter if it's a little tiny thing or a huge rafter. He is waiting to do that. Come to him with confidence. Why? Because Jesus already died for your sin. Jesus already rose in triumph over your sins, over all of our enemies. And he today is making all things new, including you and me. And yet we're not alone in that, right? He's given us this family. He's given you to me and me to you and us to one another so that we can judge ourselves and one another rightly. He's given us brothers and sisters to help us on this journey of removing anything that prevents us from enjoying the full life that he has on offer to us today. Here are a few community group questions to spark your conversations this week as you meet together. First, are, who are you judgy toward and why? What log in your eye is skewing your view of them? Second, when was a time that you removed a log from your eye? And then third, when was a time that you helped someone remove a speck from their eye? Let's pray and then let's respond to God together. Father God, we thank you so much for this teaching. God, we confess that we need it. We need it so badly because first off, we are tempted to see ourselves as morally superior to other people. We are tempted to be hypocrites and point out the faults and failures and sins of others without ever stopping to see them in ourselves. And so thank you for the conviction that that brings. 
We ask you to keep doing that work in us. And as we respond to you, God, we pray for this kind of transformation, that we would be the kind of community that as brothers and sisters before our Heavenly Father, we get to enjoy living in your kingdom together, getting rid of these logs and these specks so that we can see clearly, so that we can live the abundant life that you want to give to us. We pray that that would be the case in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from Trinity West Seattle. For more information about our services or to connect with us, visit our website, www.trinityws.com. Thanks for listening.